Welcome to a new season of Recycle by Eurosport, a retrospective series on the most compelling, the most controversial and the most extraordinary riders and races in cycling history. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. In this episode, we look back at one of the greatest editions of Paris-Nice, when Frenchman Jacques Anquetil won the race for the fifth and final time by denying compatriot Raymond Polydor on the very last day of the 1966 Race to the Sun. Just as Italy was torn between Fausto Coppi and Gino Bartoli, so too were the French divided over the exploits of Anquetil and Polydor. Their duel in the 1960s took place both on and off the bike, and even filtered through French society. Theirs was a rivalry that sliced France in two. It pitted the Polidorians against the Oncatelists in what became cycling's equivalent to the second round of a presidential election. Professional ties were ruined, friendships broken, and couples divorced as the passions unleashed by these two men pushed France to the limit, creating incredible tensions bordering on civil strife. Beyond the sporting plane, their conflict was an antagonism of two temperaments, two styles, two philosophies, and two ways of life. It was the proud, peppery, urbane, and aristocratic Oncatil against a salt-of-the-earth farmhand in Polydor, David versus Goliath, an uneven fight of a metronomic superman against a people's champion who embodied traits shared by the average Frenchman. The writer Jacques Augendre, the first journalist to have followed 50 Tours de France and author of Anquetil and Polydor, A French Divorce, compared the five-time tour winner Maitre Jacques to the cunning, scheming and unscrupulous Machiavelli, set against Poupou, his eternal second rival. Polydor, on the other hand, displayed the innocent, good-hearted but hopelessly naive optimism of Voltaire's Candide. If the tour was his summertime Eden, then Anquetil also built a greenhouse over Paris-Nice making the early season stage race his own Arcadia on the Riviera. Having won the Race to the Sun in 1957, 1961, 1963 and 1965, the then 32-year-old Onkatil entered the 1966 edition bent on successfully defending his crown for the first time. As for Polydor, he was approaching his 30th birthday and had yet to finish on the podium. The thought of being beaten by Polydor disgusted Onkatil to the point that, if he couldn't win a particular race, he would at least do his darndest to ensure his rival did not. His famous loss to Polydor when they went shoulder to shoulder on the Puy de Dôme in the 1964 tour had displayed a chink in his armour, and provided an indication that this relentless conqueror was not unbeatable. But Onkatil was also growing tired of the noise surrounding their rivalry. He was increasingly bitter that his victories did not warrant mention by the press unless Polydor was also racing. As stressed by his biographer, Paul Fornell, author of Onkatil Alone, the rivalry goes beyond the two men. It no longer belongs to them, but becomes a matter for the press and the fans who have taken it up. No one can talk about Onkatil without talking about Polydor. This infuriates Onkatil. Everything was coming to the boil ahead of March 1966 when the combination of Onkatil's win-at-all-costs mentality and his unwavering obsession with beating Polydor resulted in one of the greatest rides that Paris-Nice, perhaps even the sport, has ever seen. If the Puy de Dôme in 1964 was the pinnacle of their rivalry, then Paris-Nice two years later ramped it up another notch. The 1966 edition was blessed by clement temperatures and bright sunshine. Before the GC battle got going, the likes of Vittorio Adorni, Rick Van Loy and Rudy Altag picked up sprint wins as the race headed south from the Parisian suburb of Montereau. 
It might have taken until 2013 for the world's biggest bike race to visit Corsica, but Paris-Nice headed to the Mediterranean island almost half a century before the Tour de France. The focus was on Frenchman Roger Pinjon during Stage 6A, a rolling 67 kilometres to and from Bastia, when he abandoned before promptly announcing his retirement from the sport, aged just 25. It was a hissy fit of epic proportions. Just one week on, Pinjon would return to race Milan-San Remo. He went on to win the Tour a year later, as well as the Vuelta in 1969. That's quite some retirement. That same afternoon in Corsica, the riders faced the first GC test of the race with a 36-kilometre time trial between Castor and Lille Rousse. The undulating course took place on narrow and twisting roads and was described, admittedly with a little exaggeration, as the most beautiful race against the clock ever witnessed in cycling. Set against the snow-capped mountains and rocky outcrops above the turquoise sea, the route was said to contain 300 bends and no single straight longer than 200 metres. For a roller like Onkatil, a time trial specialist in a time trial not especially favourable to his strengths, it proved impossible for him to churn those trademark big gears. And for the first time in his career, a spent Onkatil came out second best to Polydor in the race of truth, conceding one second for every kilometre to his big rival. With Polydor taking the yellow jersey that day, and leading Onkatil by 36 seconds in the standings with just two days remaining, the shockwaves could even be felt back on the French mainland. As Fournel writes, Onkatil is furious at being beaten in his speciality, furious at the reception Poupou receives from the Corsican fans, furious at having, he believes, lost this Paris-Nice that was meant for him. He's in a rage, and even his wife Janine has to keep her distance. Revenge, as they say, is a dish best served cold, but Onkatil was running short on time and he seemed to be dining out on former glories. Still, he knew full well that nothing could be done on the race's last day in Corsica, with Stage 7, a 155km affair to a Jackio, not offering enough climbs to spring an ambush. And so, with his manager, Raphael Giminiani, he plotted one final throw of the dice on the final stage between Antibes and Nice, in a bid to turn things round on the mainland. In the words of Fornell, he ruminates, delves into his memories, consults old press cuttings. He has noticed that, following a huge effort, Polydor pays for it 48 hours afterwards. He calls Giminiani and tells him he won't bother in the next stage, but on the last one, on the mainland, he will launch an attack. Jem needs to prepare the troops and their allies because it will be total warfare. The troops, in this case, were Onkatil's Ford teammates. Jean Stablinski, Jean-Claude Annette, Paul Lemetea, Pierre Everard, Jean-Claude Wielemin, and Ari Den Hartog. And the Allies, if the rumours were to be believed, also included the race's two Italian teams. Having survived a minor scare in Stage 7, dropped on a course can climb before being forced to take risks rejoining Polydor on the descent, Onkatil entered the final 167km stage on the Côte d'Azur with, in Fornell's words, vengeance in his soul. Poupou was on the brink of beating his nemesis, finally turning the tables on Onkatil. But there was another player in the frame, Vittorio Adorni, lurking in third place in the overall standings. When the Italian escaped on a narrow climb in the backcountry of the Riviera, the two French riders Ford and Mercia teams were forced into an unlikely alliance to extinguish Adorni's fleeting GC dreams. Although, to be fair, Onkatil made Polydor do most of the chasing. Either side of Adorni's ambush, and from the opening kilometre, 
Onkatil's Ford team attacked Mercia mercilessly. It was reported that Pupu had to extinguish no fewer than 38 attacks by his opponents. Yet more hyperbole from an era in which the written word was gospel. Fornell takes up the story. It soon becomes obvious that the Italian teams, Salvarini and Maltini, are riding for Onkatil. At the same time, it's plain that the Peugeot riders are on Polydor's side. One of them, Andre Zimmerman, pushes Polydor up a climb, and it's said that the motorbikes pull Onkatil up the climb at Tourette. Some of the cyclists claim to have been pushed into the gutter. Everywhere, there are claims of dangerous riding and intimidation. If Onkatil was keeping his powder dry for the final climb, his intentions were clear for all to see. Realising he had to play to his strengths, that is to say, time trialling, Onkatil was riding the hilly stage with a TT bike sporting 180mm cranks. After a series of softening blows on the last ascent of the day, Onkatil finally managed to distance Polydor, who had been stretched to breaking point. Alone at last, Onkatil crested the summit with a small gap. With a long, flat stretch along the seafront following the descent, he needed to recoup 36 seconds if he wanted to pull off the most unlikely of victories. Although GPS had yet to be invented, the consensus was that Onkatil rode the fastest 33 kilometres ever recorded on a bike, pushing the kind of gear ratio usually seen behind a derny on the track. Here's Fornell again. He puts on one of those performances only he knows how to do, alone in front of the peloton, riding as if it was a time trial, livid with rage. Soaked in sweat, Onkatil crossed the line on the Promenade d'Anglais and fell straight into the arms of his joyous director sportif, Giminiani. The chasing pack came home one minute and 24 seconds down. Onkatil had wrested yellow from Polydor's shoulders in extremis, winning his fifth Paris-Nice by 48 seconds. The race was won, but the war was far from over. In disgust at Ford's behaviour and their alliance with the Italian teams, Polydor told the press, Now I know that Onkatil is the patron. His teammates didn't behave well on the road to Nice, and he would acknowledge as much if he's honest with himself. To which Onkatil, hardly the most sympathetic of souls, later replied, Polydor is just a crybaby. The interview in which he repeated the accusations by his team to cast a doubt over the correctness and sincerity of my victory, that interview is not worthy of a champion and I will find it difficult to forgive him. The French Cycling Federation opened an inquiry at the demand of Mercier director sportif Antonin Magny, who accused Ford of having barged his riders off the road. In particular, they cite Jean-Claude Wielemin for knocking Britain's Barry Hoban into a ditch and forcing him to abandon, a charge Wielemin would later admit to. With his team's sponsorship deal with Mercia Bikes now in jeopardy because of these accusations, Giminiani threatened to lodge his own complaint about Magny for sporting, moral and commercial prejudice. A thorough investigation followed and decided that the result should stand but France was divided by this non-political sporting hot potato of Drefusian proportions. Fornell says that, for all the controversy, both Onkatil and his team deserved praise for what they achieved that day, turning a lost race on its head with a flawlessly hatched plan. The team was strong, and that day was perfectly in line on its mission. There was no place for anything but Onkatil's victory. Every teammate paid a big price, they were exhausted, and even Wielemin had to admit that he had pushed Hoban out of the road. Were Italian teams involved in this battle? We will never know for sure. Overall, it was not a very pure race, but we must recognise that Onkatil was fantastic in playing his final role in the last part of the stage. So, what happened next? 
After the dust settled on his record-breaking Paris-Nice victory, capping his latest success in an ongoing quest to stifle Polydor, Onkatil reflected on what might have been. I thought, what would happen if the results were reversed? First, Polydor. Second, Onkatil. Then, I'd have been written off straight away. One lone defeat would count as much as 15 or 20 victories. Was that fair? I could already picture the crocodile tears being shed because of my supposed decline. Onkatil's decline was on its way, but there was still time for a few peaks rising out of the trough. Two months later, Onkatil took the only monument win of his career at Liège-Baston-Liège before finishing on the podium of the Giro d'Italia. Later that summer, he withdrew from the Tour de France a few days from Paris once a sixth win became impossible, but not before ensuring that his teammate Lucien Aymar, and not Polydor, would win the Maillot Jean. Their simmering rivalry was brought back to the boil during the 1966 World Championships at Nürburgring, when Onkatil and Polydor cancelled each other out, allowing the German Rudi Altag to take the victory. By finishing runner-up and ahead of Polydor on the podium, it was the closest Onkatil came to winning the rainbow jersey. Although some members of the French press, the Polydorians presumably, claimed that Onkatil had opted to ride for his former Saint Raphael teammate to eliminate the chance of his compatriot taking the gold medal. This accusation was fueled by the fact that Onkatil and his wife had been staying with the Alltags prior to the race, and with Onkatil and Polydor clashing off the front of the peloton, Alltag was able to bridge over on the last lap before easily outsprinting the French duo at the finish. That World Championship story is a shame, says Fournel. This was the ridiculous side of the opposition between the two French riders. After that, it had to stop. It was not a fallout of Paris-Nice only. It was the result of thousands of articles and declarations, hundreds of races, and more than a few blows below the belt. While Polydor still had 11 years of famously never winning the Tour de France left in his legs, Onkatil quit racing in 1969, adding just a few minor wins to his name after his glory in La Doyenne. But as his reign of imperiality was closing, another more famous era of domination was about to begin. Indeed, all eyes were soon on the rider who finished fourth in that famous 1966 edition of Paris-Nice. Behind Onkatil, Polydor and Adorni was a young Belgian by the name of Eddie Merckx. The 20-year-old came third in the opening stage and put in a solid display for Peugeot that week, never coming in outside the top 10 and showing an all-round ability that made a mockery of his tender years. Here was a star for the future, many observers felt, and that future arrived sooner than they had anticipated. Later that month, Merckx won his first of seven Milan-San Remo crowns. Onkatil and his nation-splitting spat with Polydor would soon be a fleeting memory and France's cycling fans had nothing to squabble about. For if Onkatil was a jack of all trades, Merckx was a master of many more. And what of the significance of 1966? Onkatil's relentless psychological grip over Polydor is one of cycling's enduring mysteries. For all his anger and opposition towards his rival, it's as if... To borrow again from Paul Fornell, Polydor's admiration for Onkatil was such that it ultimately proved fatal. Speaking 54 years after their epic duel, Fornell highlights the monumental nature of Onkatil's last gasp win over Polydor in Nice, a win that came after his rival looked to have beaten him, finally, at his own game. It is an apex in the Onkatil-Polydor battle, and it's a special victory because it did not come in the traditional Onkatil style. He rode more like the baroudeur, the fighter, the adventurer, the opportunist that he was not. He had no space left to calculate, to speculate, or to spare some strength. Fornell, however, cannot say whether the victory in Nice was more symbolic than Polydor's most famous scalp two years earlier on the Puy de Dom. 
Those two moments cannot compare. The Poi de Dom was obviously a mano a mano victory. There was nothing left for strategy. It was pure strength. Paris Nice in 1966 was a victory of teamwork, well finished by Jacques. When asked whether Anquetil was more motivated by stopping Polydor win a maiden Paris Nice title rather than by winning his own fifth crown, Fornell claims it's impossible to tell. Choosing between these two options would be an act of reason, but there was no reason involved at that point. It was a matter of pure rivalry. There was no other plan than beating the other, and at that game, Onkatil was stronger. Given their rivalry on the bike and constant sniping at one another via the press, it would be reasonable to conclude that the two most popular French riders of their generation hated each other with a vengeance. But that was not the case. At heart, the pair were very close, and their friendship blossomed after Onkatil finally retired in 1969. In fact, the story goes that Onkatil, reflecting on his relationship with Polydor, lamented before he died in 1987, we lost 15 years of friendship. For all his wins and his rival's lack of yellow jerseys, it is perhaps telling that the majority of French fans at the time would have voted the everyman Polydor rather than the clinical Onkatil into the Elysee Palace had there ever been a presidential-style vote between the two. Even Onkatil's own daughter, Sophie, born in 1970, was transported by the wave of what the French called popularité. As the five-time Tour de France and Paris-Nice winner later admitted to his former adversary, she knew how to say poo-poo before saying papa. Not only did you piss me off for most of my career, you continue to do so in retirement. I live in the knowledge that she worships the ground you walk on. This has been the first episode of the new season of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze, and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK, or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Join us for our next episode when we'll look back at Sean Kelly's breakneck plunge off the podio when he reeled in Moreno Argentine for his second Milan-San Remo victory in 1992.